0: Read the whole psalm. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. Nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. God, we... Uh, we do just thank you once again for your word uh, that you speak to us and it's not just information but it's to our hearts and And you know uh, the things that are on each of our hearts this morning uh, and that you desire for us to know the truth, uh, to be set free as we consider Christ and so we just and trust you in this time. Lord, we we just want you to be honored and lifted up. And I just pray that our hearts will be encouraged uh, to see you just a little more clearly for who you are. Lord, your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charlie is out this morning, obviously. Um, He is uh, in Colorado, getting ready to teach at one of the Bible schools there. And so he asked me to fill in for him this week. And it's really nice to have our students back. i uh, always uh, grateful when, when they show up and his hill is full again. And then church also is full again, trying to find a seat. It's a good problem to have, and so we just thank the Lord for, for them. Uh, and we do just continue to ask that you all, as a, a body, would just be praying for us at, at His Hill as we are just walking through the Word of God together and, and just sharing life together, that we would just be encouraging one another uh, as, as we have a fresh group each semester, each year, uh, that are hungry to know the Lord, and then they're here for a time and enjoy sweet fellowship with like-minded believers, and then they go back. Uh, and uh, there are settings, and some of them are good and comfortable settings, and others are more difficult and challenging, so just the time that they have preparation at his hill is just precious, and so we just ask you all to be praying for us, and we know that you are, and just thank you so much for that. In Psalm 16, as I was thinking about, and just praying over what the Lord had me talk about, this psalm just kept coming back mind, It's a messianic psalm, as you may have recognized those verses at the end. In verse 10 he says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And this is uh, a quote that Peter makes uh, in Acts chapter 2 when he is preaching at Pentecost. And he's wanting to, to communicate to the, uh, the Jewish people there at Pentecost that Jesus really was the Messiah. And so one of the things that he brings up is this psalm and how it is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, and so when we come to the psalms, and some of them are considered messianic psalms, or they're prophetic about who Jesus was and things that he would do and attributes of his, his life, uh, that as we see this messianic side of the psalm, we, we're we encouraged to see that this is about Christ. Uh, that's what... All of the word of God is about. That's what this psalm in particular is about. The person of Christ. And also with that, that he desires for us to live in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, That we are to be living from Christ himself. And so David is writing here. And for some of the psalms of David, at the top of it, in the heading, it will give you a little bit of context of what's going on. Like he's hiding in the caves from Saul. And he writes a psalm. Uh, but for this psalm, it doesn't give us any context of David's situation, what his circumstances are. But he's writing it personally, but also in hope of the Messiah that's coming. Uh, and so we, we can connect with this psalm here of it, it applies to us directly, as we also see that it communicates to us about who Christ is and what he's, what he's done. So I just thought we'd spend some time this morning just going through this psalm and and just seeing what the Lord has said in it. In verse 1, he starts off saying, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and I have no good besides you. And whatever David's circumstances when he's writing this psalm, His heart is in a place where he recognizes that he needs some help. He says, Lord, I need you to be the one to preserve me. I need refuge. I need some sense of security. And you think of what David had. If he's writing this as a king, then you would think he has quite a bit of security, that David's military might was pretty significant. Uh, And he maybe if he wasn't king yet, he had at least the security of God's promise to him One day you're going to be king. And that would be a pretty certain promise to have, something that he could hope for and anticipate. But whatever his situation, he recognizes his need for the Lord to be his refuge. And this is to be the disposition of all of God's people a position of reliance and dependence rather than self reliance and independence. And our flesh is always wanting to push us towards independence, to rely on ourselves. This is why in Proverbs chapter 30, he he writes and says, Lord, don't give me riches and don't give me poverty. Because if I'm really rich, then I may think that I'm independent and I can take care of myself and I won't have need of you. And if I'm really poor, then maybe I'll curse you. He says, I'll read this here in Proverbs 30, verse 9. He says, So that I would not be fool and deny you, if he was rich, and say, who is the Lord? Or, if I was poor, that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, it doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Your temptation to be self-reliant is equal. It makes no difference. So no matter where we are, there's a need for us to be brought back to the reality that Christ is to be our refuge. That we say, preserve me, O God, because I cannot preserve myself. And whether or not our circumstances are smooth or tumultuous and they're problematic, uh, that there's, there's always this, this temptation in our hearts to say, I can do it. And I just think of a young child, and you encourage them, uh, hey, do you want help? And the child says, my kids have said this, I can do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. They don't want help. Uh, And then, you know, we never grow out of it. Uh, And how many guys have back problems because they didn't want to ask for help to move something? Uh, And they said, I can do it on my own. I can't. I mean, Heather and I, we've moved, I think, seven times in uh, 12 years of marriage. So we, I guess, like moving. And <clears throat> most of it was just different houses at his hill. And how many times that there's a piece of furniture that needs to be moved, and I think, I could go ask Heather for help, but this is really heavy. I think I'll just do it myself. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, but this, this self-reliance, surely I don't need help. And in our lives, this is what we are inclined towards apart from God's work in our hearts, that we need the Lord to be our refuge. We need him to be the one who preserves us. But again, uh, our, our pride, our flesh, the world keeps pushing this idea that true life is found in independence. Uh, This is why we don't like rules, why we don't like structure, why we don't like limitations, because we think true satisfaction is going to come if I can just be independent. Why we get so excited when we reach uh, the end of high school and we come to college years and we're like, finally independence, this is going to be great. And then you get there and you're like, there's still rules. What's going on? Uh, the, The draw in our hearts is to be self-reliant rather than dependent on the Lord. And David reminds us here, the Lord reminds us, I have no good besides the Lord. That it is a lie to believe that I can be independent. I have nothing to offer. There's nothing in my life that's going to be giving me leverage to be more accepted and approved in the eyes of God. There's nothing in my life that's going to give me the upper hand over somebody else wealth won't skills won't but rather we recognize Lord I'm a mess without you I remember when I first came from Bible school and we always do our one or two hours of an overview of the Bible class the first uh, the first night and Kelly was the one that would teach it at the time and he'd stand up there at the beginning of the class and he would say, before we start the Bible school year, we all just have to be willing to accept that we're all one big pathetic mess. <laughs> and that's not what you're excited to hear when you come to Bible school. You come to the Bible to be encouraged and built up and hear about the love of God and the grace of God. But instead, we're reminded, I have no good besides you. That's it. That's our starting point. The Lord is good. We need him. And we think about in, in this verse, in verse 2, he says, I said to the Lord, and in, in the New American Standard, the, the word Lord there is all in, in caps, showing it's using one of the names of God, the name of Yahweh. And he says, I said to the Lord, God's name, Yahweh, you are my Lord, and that word there meaning Master. You're the one who rules over me. So first he identifies who God is, Yahweh, his name. And then he says, because that's who you are, I recognize that you are my master because you are worthy of that. This is the same name that when God is talking to Moses at the burning bush and Moses says, Lord, who will I tell them that sent me? God says, tell them that I am who I am has sent you. And a few verses later, he says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. That's the one who sent you. I am has sent you. And if Christ is the great I am, and we're wondering where can I find refuge and security, who can preserve my soul, surely I am who I am is able to. So we come to him. God is worthy. And he's good. And so he's the one that we're coming to here. And as we recognize that we have no other good options of who to go to, and one of my favorite passages in Scripture is in John 6, at the end of the chapter when Jesus is talking about how they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, uh, and the crowds are like, this is a difficult statement. Who can accept it? They all walk away. uh, And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them, how about you? Are you going to be willing to rely on me to the same degree that you rely on food and water to survive? And Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I love that. God, where else am I going to go other than Christ? I have no other options. Even if I wanted to go somewhere else, I recognize there's no other options. You're it. And so we see, he says, we have no good besides you. And he, says, he recognizes that there's no other options other than the Lord. And I don't think this is a begrudging sentiment he has. I think he's, he's delighted that he's going to the Lord. But as he considers this, uh, then in verses 3 and 4, he mentions people who have either also come to this conclusion or have rejected this conclusion. He says in verse 3, As for the saints who are in the earth, they're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So this is David talking, and he's talking about how he is encouraged and appreciates and enjoys other believers who have recognized that God is the only one that can be their refuge. There's There's this care and love and affection for believers. And this is something that, We we don't want to just pass over because I think again, when there's it's so easy to to nitpick about certain issues and things and let drama to take place and let division to occur, and and we forget the reality that we are joined together as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a precious thing that we will spend eternity not just with Christ, but also with each other, like it or not. That we will be together, joined in love and harmony and unity forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes, and he wrote a book called Life Together, and in one statement he makes, he says, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize it is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So we're not trying to live and become brothers in Christ. It's done. This is a finished work of Christ. He goes on and he says, The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and the strength and the promise of all of our fellowship with one another Is in Jesus Christ alone, then the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Our unity together is something that Christ purchased, that He has granted us. And so there ought to be a a cherishing and a longing to, to enjoy that unity. This is a special thing, it's not an obligation, it's a gift. And so David here, he mentions that he, he cherishes these other believers. He says they are the majestic ones or the excellent ones in whom is all of his delight. But he contrasts that with those who have rejected this belief that God is their refuge, that God is good and true. In verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. And there are so many stories, both in other people's lives, but also in our own lives, that we could share where that is the case. That when I determine that God is not a good place of refuge, when Christ is not my my strength, the one who preserves my soul, and I look somewhere else, then it just multiplies the sorrow in my life. For a moment, it may seem pleasant, but it's just for a breath. And then the reality of emptiness sets back in. And David communicates this disassociation or this distancing himself from being closely connected with those that have rejected the Lord. And this isn't in any way indicating you know, that the believer has no participation with the unbeliever, no, no time together, but it's where our hearts are knit together. That there's a union that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ that the unbelievers simply can never participate in until they put their faith in Christ. And when we try to find that closeness of fellowship in the world outside of the body of Christ, then we'll, we'll always be cut short. It's never going to be that which God has intended because he's intended for our fellowship and our union to be in Jesus, not in ideals, not in personalities, not in interests or hobbies, but our greatest union is the person of Christ himself. And this is why when a marriage is unequally yoked, it doesn't go well, because that which is the core of our being is separate Whereas for two believers to be joined together, they are intent on one purpose. It's not just interests that have joined them together, but it's life itself, Christ himself. So he goes on in verse 5. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And in many of the Psalms, they start off with a cry to the Lord for deliverance, some kind of uh, plea or prayer that the writer is making. And then somewhere near the middle, there's, there's a, a hinge verse or a truth that the writer recognizes and he proclaims and he embraces And then it leads for the rest of the psalm to be him praising the name of the Lord because of some reality. And I think that's what these verses here are. These are the hinge verses that swings. He's not discouraged in verses 1 and 2, but he's pleading and he's desperate. Lord, you are my refuge. But then after verses 5 and 6, he's simply going to be celebrating. He's going to be praising. Because in verses 5 and 6, he identifies the pillar, the truth that the Lord brings to his heart and mind that then encourages him to give praise to the Lord. This is significant. And this is what he says. He says that God himself is his reward. In verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And my dad, he worked in the probate court for a while in South Carolina, a county in South Carolina. And so he dealt with all of the estates. Uh, Whenever someone passed away and families had to settle their estates, he had the fun job of having all those conversations. Uh, And there's so much division that takes place in a family over the will uh, that the the mother or father leave behind. And siblings who may be really close-knit, once that will comes out and they realize, oh, you got that and I got this, oh, no, that's not right. And suddenly there can be division that takes place based on the inheritance that we receive. And he says here, the inheritance that we receive is God himself. That the Lord is our portion. The Lord is the the cup that we get to receive. And he uses that phrase, the Lord is my cup. And it reminds me of when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays and he asks, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. And this cup of, what is it, Lord, that you have called me to? And in Jesus' case, in that situation, it's it's the cup of the wrath of God. That he, this is what God has called Christ to, to endure the Father's wrath. But the cup that the Lord A portions in each of our lives, the life that he calls us to. And we can think, why is my circumstance this way and somebody else's is this way and it seems unfair or unjust? And he says, no, your inheritance, your cup, your portion is not ultimately your life circumstance, but ultimately it's a person. It's God himself. And we look at our circumstances in light of the person of Christ, that he is our portion. And for the Israelites, they knew all about inheritances. And the book of Joshua, after they've come in and conquered the promised land, then Joshua has a responsibility of telling the different tribes of Israel what their inheritance is. And again, I just imagine this is a really you know, fun job sarcastically, uh, that he gets to tell the Israelites, yeah, this tribe, you guys get the Sea of Galilee. Awesome. You guys get the Dead Sea. Wow. Great. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Uh, you guys get some land along the Jordan River, nice riverfront property, and then you guys get land along the Mediterranean Sea. That's pretty cool. And you guys are landlocked. You're just right in the middle. You're welcome. And I imagine some of the Israelite tribes could have been like, why do they get that and we get this? But then Joshua would come to the Levites. And the, he says, Levites, you don't get any land. Sorry. Uh, God is your inheritance, is what it says. But you don't get land. You might get you know a town here or there in the different tribes, but you're going to be scattered around all of the tribes. And as time goes on and there's conflict in Israel, you'll see things like... The tribe of Benjamin, they can make an army and they can fight against other people and they can fight against even the other tribes of Israel. And Judah has their own military and Zebulun has his own military and all the different tribes have their own army. But the Levites, they can't make an army because they're scattered all over the place. And God has chosen to tell the Levites, you don't get a certain lot, a certain portion where the lines are drawn And you know you have security in this piece of land. Instead, your only hope and refuge is that I am your inheritance. And it reminds me in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 9, You are a chosen race, talking to to believers here, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. And that in Christ we are called to a royal priesthood. That in Christ we are to be what the Levites were in Israel, scattered among the or across the land, bearing witness and teaching the people about who God is. But they didn't get an inheritance of land. Instead, they just got the Lord, just the Lord. And that was significant. That was wonderful. That was good. They didn't get to enjoy all the other things that some of the other tribes got to have. They didn't get to have some of the securities that the other tribes got to have. But in many ways, they got the most security out of all the tribes. The Lord was their inheritance, their portion, And we think in our lives that we too have the Lord as our portion. That's what David says here. That Jesus comes so that he can give life and give it to us abundantly so that he can make his abode in us and that we can be in him. That he is our inheritance. That is our encouragement. And so when David goes on in verse 6 and he says... The lines, thinking of an inheritance, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. And he comes to understand that that which God has granted him and God being his inheritance, his portion, is good. That he's not missing out. That we're not missing out because Christ is our portion but rather we're better off. And because Christ is our inheritance and we, we hope in this assurance, we aren't replacing hardship with the hope of Christ as our inheritance. Uh, that we're not saying, okay, because Christ is my portion now there's going to be a, an alleviation of difficulty. But rather, rather than hardship being replaced with hope, we experience hope in the midst of hardship, in the midst of that which is challenging or difficult. That with God as our portion, and Christ as our inheritance, there's hope in the midst of all circumstances. And David says this is a beautiful thing. This is good. And as David reflects on this reality that the Lord is the, his portion, it's going to, again, seem to swing the rest of this psalm to, to be leading to him simply praising and exalting and celebrating who God is and what it means that he is the Lord's as he considers, the Lord is my portion. Then he's going to finish with, in verse 11, in your presence of his fullness of joy, in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, that he's going to lead, be led to celebration as he considers what is his present reality, that he is the Lord's. And so in verse 7, His response to the Lord being his portion. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And how has the Lord counseled him? We don't have any any quotes in here saying that God showed up and started speaking to David. What is the counseling that he's talking about here? And I really think it's just as David is praying to the Lord and reflecting on these things, the, the word of the Lord is working in David's heart and bringing him back to the truth, the reality that the Lord is his portion, that God is his cup. And as as we come to the Word of God and we meditate on the Word of God, the Lord uses his Word to bring us to the living Word, that we can remember that he is our portion. That the counsel of God that he gives to David here, that comes through the Word of God, it promotes confidence in God. And that there's this security that he he embraces and he proclaims as he remembers, God is my portion. God is my inheritance. I'm not seeking an inheritance somewhere else. I'm not seeking security somewhere else. I'm not looking around me in comparison and saying, if only that was my lot, then things would be better. But instead, I'm recognizing Christ is my lot. Things can't get any better. This is good. And so he says, I will bless the Lord as the Lord brings us back into conformity to his word and reminds us of of this truth. Think of the verse and he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is the counsel of God in our lives. And He mentions here then also thinking with his own mind. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night because God has communicated to us through language and through words which calls for thought and reflection to consider these things. And so as God has given counsel to David that God is his portion and David considers that and he meditates on that and he thinks on it. His heart is encouraged. And in verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And if you keep your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 2, it's interesting to me how Peter, when he quotes this passage, he misquotes it or he quotes it correctly because he's inspired, Uh, but he doesn't quote it word for word as it is here. And I recognize there's this translation, things that are happening as well in all this. Uh, But in in Acts chapter 2, he says in verse 25, For David says of him, speaking of Christ, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. All right, so keep your finger there and looking back at Psalm 16, verse 8, he says, I've set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And When I first read verse 8 in Psalm 16, it, it almost reads as if because I'm setting the Lord in front of me, that means that he's now at my right hand and so I won't be shaken. But in Acts, the way that Peter quotes it, he says, I'm just observing what is the reality. It's not David or Peter that is making God be present with him. But rather, he says, I saw the Lord always in my presence. The Lord is with me. For he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. It's not that I won't be shaken because I'm setting the Lord continually before me. But there's this certainty. The Lord is before me. The Lord is with me. So I won't be shaken. It's not reliant on me making sure that I'm in the presence of God, but it's simply remembering the reality that I am in God's presence. That is where the confidence comes from, that God does not leave or forsake. So it's believing what is true. And all of these things are found in Christ. They're found to be true of Christ, that when we come to the written word of God, we'll find ourselves staring at the living word of God, Christ himself, and then that promotes confidence in our hearts as we consider him. Coming to the written word, as David does here, as he considers the counsel of the Lord and his mind instructs him, As he comes to the the written word, he experiences the living word, and his heart is set right, that he's not shaken, as he's reminded that God is with him. He's not inviting God to come into David's presence, but David is recognizing that he is in God's presence. And then this culminates in verses 9 through 11. And he says... Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely. And as we think about what he's written so far up to this point, he's talked about how he is no good besides God. David has no reason for boasting in himself. We have no reason for boasting in ourselves. And... That this sentiment, this recognition, this belief is acknowledged among the body of believers. Among all those who follow the Lord. That we have no good besides Him. And this is something that ties our hearts together. And that God has instead freely and generously given Himself. That He has provided a way for us to be in his presence, that he is our portion, he is our inheritance, not because of any good in me, not because any good in any of us that we're contributing, but he simply is our inheritance out of his own grace and mercy towards us. And it's a pleasant and precious inheritance so then we can have confidence because we are with the Lord in the presence of God. And so, all that has been done. That's what's the reality in our lives. And all that's left for us to do has nothing to do with our relationship with God as far as making that happen. But instead, all that's left to do is to say thank you. There's nothing we can contribute to the relationship. I have no good besides you. But instead, we come and we simply say, God, thank you. Thank you that you are my portion. Thank you that you are my inheritance. Thank you that you are my refuge. Thank you that I can dwell securely in your presence. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, and my flesh will dwell securely. This is all the reality that we get to experience in response to what God has established. Verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And we see this fulfilled in Christ. We see all of this fulfilled in Christ. That, that Christ himself comes and he recognizes, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I only do that which the Father instructs me to do I don't do my own will but only the will of him who sent me that Christ does not live independently of the father but instead he lives dependently Christ endures the cross how come for the joy set before him and then he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God because God is his portion the father is his inheritance and when Christ is buried in the grave, the Father does not have his body undergo decay. But instead, before he can even begin to decompose in the dirt, God raises him back to life. In fulfillment of this. And it's, I find it interesting in verse 9... Then he mentions, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Seems to be speaking of the, the soul there, our identity as a person, of who we are. And then the rest of the verse is about the, the body. My flesh also will dwell securely. So there's our, our soul and our, our personhood of who we are in Christ as a person that eternally we will live forever. That aspect of our being But then there's also the physical aspect that he mentions. And he addresses both of those. How God preserves both the soul and the body. It's not just one or the other. He says in verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You won't separate yourself from me, but rather we are forever in the presence of God. There's security there. Again, this is just his celebrating what is true nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That even though our bodies, when they're put in the earth, they are going to decay. But we do have the promise of a restored, a new body. That that is a certainty that we have, and that's going to be eternal. And in verse 11, he concludes, and he says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And these three final assurances that he gives, that God will make known to us the path of life. He promises to do that for his son, Christ And he does that, and we see Jesus as the the firstborn of the dead. We see him being the first to experience this uh, in his glorified body. But we have this promise ourselves, and David anticipates this as well, that we in Christ experience the path of life. It's not just a futuristic event that we're waiting for. But if life is rooted in Christ, who holds all things together by the word of his mouth, and Christ dwells in us, then as we consider Jesus, then he makes known to us the path of life. He is life. In your presence is fullness of joy. That as he is asking God to preserve him, to be his refuge, because he is no good besides God. He recognizes that in the presence of God alone, there is true joy. And again, quoting in Hebrews chapter 12, when it says that for the joy set before him, Christ endures the cross. That Jesus endures the cross and then is brought into the presence of the Father, and there, for the joy set before him, he enjoys that joy, being in the presence of God. It's in the presence of God that we experience fullness of joy. And he says that he is present with us, that it is not our calling for him to come be present with us, but as Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2, he is present, that that is my security. It's not something I'm longing for. It's something that I'm acknowledging. And in the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. All of these are realized in the person of Jesus. And so, our, again, our hope and our confidence comes and is brought back to the Lord Jesus Christ. David longs for these things, and he prays for these things, And he recognizes that it's only in God that he's going to experience these things. And Christ comes and lives this out before us. Despite where the lot of Christ fell, that which was his calling in his time on earth, the suffering and the rejection that he experienced, yet I think he would say with the psalmist here, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Not that the hardship itself is pleasant, but that the hope in the midst of it is pleasant. That God is his portion. The Father is his portion. And so for us as well, as we are walking in the life of Christ, we too get to enjoy that. That reality of hope in the midst of challenge and difficulty, the reality of the fullness of joy as we walk with Christ. This is not just something that that we talk about, but is never uh, something that we know in our hearts. But he says this is what we know as we abide in him, as we entrust ourselves to him, as we say, Lord, you are my Lord, you are my master, I have no good besides you. All right. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you uh, just for your word again, and, and for the just the assurance that we have of your presence with us, and the the confidence that we have in the the person and the work of Christ, Lord. That in Ephesians you. Promise us that we get to partake in the inheritance of Christ, uh, that you are a portion, God. And again, this is just your great gift. And so as, as we walk through this, this day and this week, uh, just let that be uh, the, the reality that we consider in our hearts, that you are with us uh, and that you are good, our good portion.